fellow ag nerds. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week I talk to the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. My guest on today's episode is actually much more qualified to talk about the future of agriculture than I am. Every so often on this show, I get to interview someone who it just feels like no matter what I ask them, they have a clear, thoughtful, and interesting response. Today is definitely an example of one of those times. We have on the show David Dahl, who's the general manager of Rota Unica Agriculture based in Portugal. I think his clear thinking is partially a result of his fascinating background. He grew up in Indiana on a direct-to-consumer apple and peach orchard, and then got a master's degree in plant pathology from my alma mater, UC Davis. After a decade of being a farm advisor for the University of California focused on tree nuts, he took on his current role of moving to Portugal to manage a large-scale diversified tree crop operation. And on top of all of that, he writes what I think is probably the most in-depth blog dedicated to just one crop that I've ever seen at TheAlmondDoctor.com, of course, talking about almonds. I really personally benefited from interacting with David on Twitter and then also in the FOA community. I think you're really going to enjoy his perspective here today. First, though, I want to make sure you know that one of my favorite ag podcasts, Fieldwork, is back with an all-new season. Co-hosts Mitchell Hora and Zach Johnson, who you probably remember from episode 205 last year, are back to talk all things sustainable ag. This season, they'll tackle financing farm innovation, carbon markets, new sustainability standards in crops like cotton, and so much more. They're also doing a special focus on Washington County, Iowa, where Mitchell lives and farms, which has a very strong conservation culture. What's the special sauce? Well, listen and find out. Episodes drop weekly on Wednesdays. You can find them at fieldworktalk.org or wherever you get podcasts. Thanks, guys, for supporting this show and best of luck with this new season. Okay, let's dive into today's episode with David Dahl. We talk a lot about specialty crops, of course, almonds, water, technology, and the difference between farming in the U.S. and where he is now in Portugal. I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where we start talking a little bit about David's previous experience as a farm advisor in California. I've been always one of these people where I find a weakness, I just go for it and try to learn more. So I came into the position, I, I felt comfortable with my understanding of, of plant diseases, and I rolled into work focusing on water use within almonds, trying to get an understanding of nutrition, both the soil component as well as plant component. So looking at soil applications, then looking at different products that you can do for foliar applications, insect control, and eventually looking at salinity issues as that came up in the drought that occurred about five to six years ago. So you essentially become a, a jack or a jill of all trades. And I like that. There was always another project to work on. There was always a good question to ask. And uh, the colleagues that I had were of the same nature. They were always asking questions and, and trying to push forward and, and helping each other learn. So like looking back, it provided such a strong foundation for where I am today. I mean, I don't even know where I would be without that that understanding. I mean, like here in Portugal with the operation, you know, you have to do everything. You don't have that infrastructure and that foundation of support services that you, you typically see in the U.S. And, you know, I calculate my own rates of fungicides and herbicides and insecticides that I have to use. And I have to identify the active ingredients that are safe for almonds that, you know, have MRLs established. So I'm not using something illegal because over here, you just have a book and these are the chemicals that they have and figure it out. 
<laughs> so, you know, that just helps because then you get used to it. But then looking at the differences in weather and trying to take into account how that may impact the tree growth or the tree performance, looking at the cultural practices, which are kind of the changes you can do to the agricultural system to make that plant healthier. Those all come along with it too. I mean, we get a lot more rain. It's it's cooler springs. It's more disease. You know, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> hmm. So is that why this group in Portugal came and got you and, and recruited you over to that position is because they knew they didn't have the local advisors that they would need for someone who'd just been in a farm manager type of role? Yeah, I think that's correct. So when I was in discussions with the investment group on making the, the trip to come over here, I told them I've never ran a business like this before. My largest program I ran was about a $250,000 annual program funded by soft funding through commodity boards and et cetera. And, you know, I managed two to three employees and had a, a you know, money to, to manage everything else. Coming over here and looking at a project that's somewhere between 80 and $100 million was a completely changing scale. And I mentioned that to him and, and he said, well, you know, one thing I've learned in life, you only get one choice, one of two things when you do a project like this, you get someone who's good in finances or you get someone who's good in technical application. And he's like, we're going into a new environment. I don't know what to expect. So from my perspective, I can teach you the finances. I can't teach you how to be a farmer in these conditions. You need to have the technical foundation in order to make these orchards successful. Everything else we'd learn. And that kind of stuck with me. I, I feel that that's true. I've, I'm not saying I'm an accountant by any means, but I, I can get through our annual financial reports and understand exactly what's going on, our monthly roll-ups. I know exactly where all the money's going. And, and that just came through discipline and training and, and learning. So I guess the way I look at it is um, I, I think when you come into a position like this, you just have to be willing to learn. I, I think everyone would say the same thing, but you have to be able to be willing to know what your shortfalls are, be honest with yourself, and then throw in the extra effort in order to pick yourself up. I'll be honest, I never thought I would ever be negotiating a loan that's probably more money than I'll ever earn in my life. But you know, you walk in, you do it, and you learn a few things along the way and move on. You know, some of those lessons hurt, but that's just what happens. <laughs> and so tell us about the operation today. Is it all almonds? And, you know, just, I guess, describe it to us. Yeah, so uh, our company, Rota Unica, it specializes in Mediterranean crops. So we're predominantly focused on almonds, but we have an emphasis on plant-based proteins. So I'm, I'm really interested in, in working in almonds because one, it's, it's a good crop. Uh, regardless of what people hear on the media about water this, water that, and bees and, and problems with bees, it's a good crop. It uses far less water than the world average, it's about 0.85 liters per kilocalorie or a calorie with a big C that we see on the back of the wrapper. And that's about 15% less than the world average of water use per calorie of food. And that's plant-based. The seed store, 90% of it enters into the food stream or more. And there's very few crops that can claim that. So it's a very efficient crop in terms of water usage and consumption of, of that product by humans um, from being produced. So we have interest in that mainly because the EU has a strong demand for almonds. So of course, that's probably the primary component to our, our portfolio. But we also are looking at diversification into other crops that are being used as food additives. One, for example, we're kind of interested with carob, uh, which is used for a thickening agent, 
hair bean gum, as, as some people may see on the back of salad dressings. We're looking at some specialty grain crops as well, uh, just to try to see if we can hit some of these niche markets due to the climate that's within Portugal that's very Mediterranean. So trying to find something that will do really well here, allow us to use the resources we have efficiently and effectively, and, and try to hit some of these markets that are ever growing within the EU. I mean, it's, it's roughly the same size as, as the United States. And it's a little bit more temperamental with its food. It, it tends to be more concerned about where it's grown and how it's grown. And it makes things difficult in some ways, but it, it provides a lot of opportunities in others. So the investor group, are they a Portuguese-based investment group? Is their thesis like, hey, these plant-based foods or this trend's, you know, just getting going. And so we want to be in this space or, you know, what's their sort of thesis? So the investment group is not a Portuguese company. It's actually an American company. And their thesis is food is a way to move water in a commodity that people want. That's it. <laughs> so it's, it's true, though. Yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's such a simple statement, but it's, it's right on the spot. I made a comment on, on your website, Tim, about water commodity trading. And, you know, we've been trading water in agriculture for hundreds of years. We just do it in the grain or the apples or the tomatoes or the almonds. That's how we're trading water. We're taking that resource from where we have it and where it may be plentiful at a given time, producing something with it, and then moving that to an area that one can't produce that crop or doesn't have the resources to produce that crop. And that's their thesis. That's it. Growing almonds is a way to move water from Portugal to Northern Europe in a product that people want to buy. Uh, I'm glad I asked that question. That's, I mean, it's so simple and profound and thought provoking, I think. I mean, to me, it makes me think about, okay, so if that's true, then, you know, essentially we're, we're exporting our water when we export these products. And now, granted, it's a complicated issue because we get you know, more than we give uh, when we export, but it does put it in a different light. Oh, yeah, that's that's a very loaded statement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on where that water is coming from. And if that water is coming from a renewable resource, that's different than if it's coming from an aquifer that never can be recharged. And I think we have to look at it just as that. You know, I'm blessed that everything that we're doing here in Portugal is all the surface water and it's renewable. We're not using aquifers mainly because the wells here aren't, aren't efficient. There's just not a good place to drill wells. But I've been in both parts of the U.S. as well as other parts of the world where they're utilizing water that is a known finite resource. You know, oh, we have 100 years of water and they're using that to grow crops that are of high value. In this case, almonds or maybe something else. And they're exporting that to another country. Of course, it's going to provide a little bit of a boom. But what happens when that resource is out? It's, it's gone. I mean, I remember being in Jordan and, and sitting on top of an aquifer that they said, oh, well, this will last, you know, 100 years. But it's like 150,000-year-old water. So what happens when it's gone? It's gone. And I, I think we, we have to realize that there's parts in this world that are going to receive more precipitation and we're going to be able to do certain things in those areas and others. But it doesn't mean we don't figure out how to make farming in those drier areas improve the water resources. Because those drier areas provide conditions that are conducive for high agricultural productivity, much higher than people can you know, 
are actually think that's going on and higher valued crops. So it's complicated, but yeah, it's, it's something we, we have to look at that. Yeah, we are trading a natural resource, hopefully renewable in exchange for economic prosperity. And it's no different than logging, you know, fishing, and it's of a similar nature. How much of you finding this opportunity had to do with uh, your blog, theallmanddoctor.com? <laughs> uh, I think it had everything to do with the blog, but not with the intention of starting the blog uh, was to find this job. I, I think I'm, I'm well reasonably known within the almond world for the website, The Almond Doctor. And I started that back in 2009 when there was very few websites. I mean, a blog will date itself just right there. Like that was the technology at the time. So Tim with podcast, you know, you just surpassed this. And we started that in 2009 and there was nothing online. I was trying to find out how do you plant an almond tree? And it was like a, a wiki how page and it was terrible advice. And I said, well, this just can't work. If I'm here looking online for answers to questions, there has to be farmers doing the same. So that's what kind of drove my motivation to start this thing. So now fast forward 10 years, it went from kind of a weekly update to now I'm somewhere around one, maybe two a month, depending on on a variety of topics. And it's kind of this technical writing with a translational twist is what I, I call it. So I'm always writing about a kind of a technical subject, but I'm using that and translating that to help people understand my thought process of how I approach that problem. So if I'm talking about fungicides or if I'm talking about pollination with bees or uh, horticulture or pruning, it's it's how I'm approaching that problem and then interjecting it with the horticultural understanding of, of that decision. And, you know, generally I receive good feedback. And of course, when you have something online and it's on the website, uh, on the World Wide Web, it goes everywhere. So that led to some consulting opportunities. And one of them was to do the feasibility study for this project. So that's... Uh, how this happened is I actually came over and wrote the feasibility study for producing almonds in Portugal and took that back to the investment group. The investment group sat on that and called me in like about a month or two later saying, you know, what do you think of this feasibility study? You still stand by it? I said, yeah. They're like, what do you think about Portugal? I said, well, I like it. They're like, you want to run this project for us? And and then it took about eight months to make that decision because that's a big move. <laughs> and I really enjoyed my position within uh, as a farm advisor. So I really learned the definition of bittersweet through that process. Let's just put it that way. You know, you, you learn that life is more about learning what you're going to regret less rather than, you know, what you're going to uh, not regret. It was hard. Uh, but, you know, the the website is, it's a forum that I like still, and I still keep it updated. And I encourage people to check it out. I enjoy trying to explain horticultural subjects in writing. And I always felt that if you can write something, then you can explain it. Like, I feel like writing is, it's one of the hardest forms of communication to perfect, especially from a technical component. And I think it helped make me a better horticulturalist in the end when I write about a subject. And there's times I even look up articles on my own website and I'm thinking, oh man, I completely forgot about that. That's a good <laughs> That's piece good of to information. Know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. I, I mean, I can't think of another blog like it. There's so much information there. It's incredibly informative. And, you know, I can't think of another one, another commodity where somebody who, you know, it's not their job, it's not their business. They just decided that they're going to sort of aggregate all this information in one place. It's really robust. I mean, it's very well done. 
Well, thank you. And I, I view it as an effort similar to these podcasts, to a lot of the other different aspects going out there. I mean, it's kind of a niche blog, but you know, I enjoy it. And I feel like sometimes I have this pressure that I have to write something and you probably feel this too. Like it's on you, it's on you, it's on you. Like, oh, I gotta write something, I gotta write something. And then all of a sudden you wake up and it's like Saturday morning, it's like, bam, out, 30 minutes, it's done. You're like, how did that happen? And sometimes I write about something and I think, oh, this is such a great idea. I didn't have it. And I look through the archive and like, oh, I posted about that like five years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's nothing wrong with refreshing those things. We often hear about in agriculture kind of the the limited amount of farmland out there, or, you know, in in some cases, uh, the the fear headline is the disappearing, uh, you know, farmland. That gets compounded even more, doesn't it, in Mediterranean crops like almonds because they're so picky on where they can grow. I mean, there isn't that many places in the world you can grow almonds, right? Yeah, that's correct. So you're limited to different production areas, mostly, of course, in the Mediterranean perimeter of, of the ocean, but South Africa, Chile, California, some parts of Australia. And you're really looking for this kind of a cool winter that provides enough chilling period, which is this essentially this amount of cold you need in order for the flower buds to fully develop, as well as to prevent them from flowering too early. And enough rainfall to kind of fill the soil profile and, and to provide adequate moisture requirements in order to produce a crop. Almonds have been grown without applications of water through irrigation for thousands of years. It was a crop that was from the Middle East for the most part, I think in Iran or maybe Afghanistan, and it made its way through the Mediterranean area just through traders, probably Phoenician and Greek traders in 3000 BC. And then the Arab settlers brought it into the Iberian Peninsula when they came in the you know fifth and sixth century. So you're able to grow this crop without a lot of water, but production is tightly linked with water application. So as you increase your water, you're getting an increase in yield. And that kind of brings always back to this question of water use efficiency or yield efficiency. And I think when when you look at Mediterranean crops and Mediterranean farmland, the question becomes more about what water resources you have to optimize the production on that land. And there's always a trade-off. I mean, I have this discussion a lot with some of my Spanish farming friends over here is, you know, yes, you can plant almonds in a lot of area, but the question is, can you condense that planting, condense those water resources and end up with the same amount of production? So in other words, if you take 10% of the water and put it on 100 acres, or if you take 100% of the water and put it on 10 acres, which one would you produce more? You'd probably produce about the same and your operational efficiencies would be much greater in the 10 acre parcel. And it's more along thinking that way rather than saying, oh, I'm just going to plant more land and trying to figure out how do you optimize the water resource in combination with the crop that you're trying to grow. And that goes back to our crop selection. I mean, I want to always be thinking of that one, because water is, it's a valuable resource in, in the environment we're in. It's a valuable resource no matter where you are. But more importantly, we have the capacity to use the technology of irrigation to increase that water use efficiency. And with that, we should be able to find crops and identify crops that are able to be more efficient and then deliver in order to meet that 15 to 20% goal of of being under the average of the world's usage of water. So that's something, you know, I personally believe in and I'm trying to push into the ethos of the company 
we can find these crops that are out there. It's it's just a matter of of identifying and, and learning how to farm them. Yeah. What can be done for water use efficiency? I mean, have you seen dramatic improvements in water use efficiency in, in your career so far? Or, you know, do you think that there's, you know, a lot of room there technologically either with genetics or, or somehow the way we apply the water? You know, what can be done? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yes, the answer is yes. I've seen some some massive changes and it was using technology that was a little bit older that really led the way. So most people think of micro sprinklers or drip irrigation as a very water efficient system. And they are in a way that they deliver water efficiently to the plant. And so when we think of it in the context of efficiency, I'm going to think of it in that scope. And I think it's important to define it that way because there's a lot of other environmental aspects of flood irrigation that are deemed inefficient, but do have some value. So when I started, I bet you it was probably close to 30 to 40% of the almond industry in California was using drip or microsprinkler irrigation. And when I left, it was close to 90. So it was a rapid uptick in acreage being planted, but it also was a lot of turnover of older orchards and everyone was installing micro irrigation or drip systems. And the rationale behind that is one, you can deliver more water in a timely basis to the plant, which allows you to increase not only your water use efficiency, but also your water applications to keep that tree growing and produce more crop. The second is you can inject your chemicals into it. So your fertilizers for the most part and feed that tree as it needs the food and time those feeds to the periods of uptake and demand. And I I think that technology in itself, which is, you know, in the 1970s, uh, developed in Israel and, and made its way over into California in the late 70s and early 80s, that technology in itself has has changed the way we farmed worldwide. And it's led to all kinds of, of different ways of looking at water applications from drip tape to drip lines to uh, soaker hoses and, and those methods. So, you know, we have essentially ridden on the back of now a technology that's essentially 50 years old. And that's really has pushed forward the levels of production increase in horticultural crops over the past 20 to 30 years, it's something that it's an old technology. And and I don't mean that to be a bad thing. It's a good technology, but we have to realize like there's ways we can do better. And it's more than just monitoring and knowing when to apply water. It's, it's about finding and identifying and breeding and selecting crops that are a little bit more water efficient and gradually keep pushing that water use efficiency component a little higher up the chart in order to to make a better use of these resources. So to make sure I'm following, I mean, are you saying that, you know, we can rethink uh, in some ways the way that we're going about uh, developing the almond genetics because the, uh, you know, drip and micro sprinkler irrigation is a given now somewhat? Yeah, I think so. And breeding for water efficiency is, is difficult. The reason is, is what allows us to identify a water efficient tree. I don't know if there's markers for it, at least a single marker for it. And most breeding programs are based on productivity or based on bloom timing or structure of the tree or the thickness of the shell or the quality of the kernel. Very few have looked at how these trees perform in dry land or drought conditions, mainly because the assumption is it's going to be irrigated. So why are we worried about trying to maximize this component. I think that is a trend that is becoming more 
interesting, I think, in breeding programs worldwide from conversations I've had with former colleagues and some of the breeders here in Europe because of climate change, because of lack of water resources and the variability associated with it. Why variability matters is if you enter into a drought and you cut the water onto an almond tree or even a pistachio tree, you're going to lose not only that year's crop from the in-season effects of the drought, but you're going to lose the next year's crop as well. Because the tree essentially has to rebuild its carbohydrate stores, rebuild the buds in order to have a successful crop the following year. So you have a two-year problem every time you go into a drought year. And finding a tree that's a little bit more resilient to that, I, I think it should be moved up the targets. It's just hard because breeding is hard. Breeding perennial crops is hard. Peaches, cherries, it doesn't matter. It's, it's a very challenging aspect. And uh, the lack of funding that's going into breeding programs worldwide, to me, is very concerning. If we want these crops to be here in the future, whether it's cherries that are dealing with low chill or, or walnuts or apples, we need to put a little bit more emphasis on, on pushing forward. So private industry has started to take a notice in fresh fruit varieties. And it makes sense because you can license and you can sell and you can control it. And we're moving to a higher density orchards. So they're planting more trees and therefore gaining more royalty. But generally speaking, these big questions aren't really being followed by private industry. This isn't like a, an annual seed program where you can do two to three generations of corn between a variety of locations in the world to, to essentially run out your different phenotypes to test them. You can't really do that with perennial crops. It's every time you have a new variety, it takes you five to 10 years just to see if it's going to produce what you want. And then another 10 to 20 years to determine if it's actually suitable for, for the production area. So you're looking at a, a much longer timeline. And I think that's why it doesn't have that great of an interest in private programs. There are a lot fewer and far and in between. Yeah, and it, it's alarming to see the decrease in funding going to agricultural research and extension in the U.S., especially when you hear you know, about your experiences over there, that an infrastructure like that doesn't exist in many other countries, in most other countries. It's alarming. And I know you were probably always an advocate for it, considering you worked there for so long, but maybe that's something you could talk a little bit more about, about you know, what does the world look like you know, without uh, the type of investment that we have here in the U.S. and in a scary way, may not have as much today as we did 10 years ago. Yeah. Boy, where do I start? <laughs> it's it's a lot harder of a world. Everything takes time. Now, the, I'm sure the language barrier doesn't help me. So I'll, I'll put it there. I'm not fluent in Portuguese yet. I'm working on it. But it, it's it's a challenge to learn a new language when you have a lot of other things going on, as anyone knows, and especially that's my first first language, but that's beside the case. Here, you don't have the resources to rely on to help you make decisions like you do in the US. So your decision support components are much less. So what do I mean by that? You don't have someone to help you determine how much of a product to put out. And the person who is telling you that is a salesperson who is essentially basing it on experience. I find here, most people aren't putting out enough fungicides, the actual active ingredient, they're putting out a third of what they should, and then they're wondering why they have disease. And the statement I always say to them is the most expensive spray you made is the one that doesn't work. 
So adding in a little bit more chemical would have been the most efficient thing to do at that given point in time. But there's no one there to provide them with that guidance. These aren't plant pathologists. These are just farmers. And their exposure to technology is, is similar on an occasional trade show, information on the internet, maybe a, a presentation here or there. But everything here tends to have a bias to it. So if it's a salesman, they're going to be selling their products, how it's a solution for the problem that you have. If it's a breeding program, they're going to be selling their varieties and how much better their varieties are compared to everything else that's out there, whether if it's founded or unfounded, it doesn't matter. Agronomists are, are paid for hire. You're not having someone that you can feel is verifying the soil results that are coming in. Soil testing labs, there's no QC. So you don't even know if what you're getting is correct. So it's just a simpler system. I always say it's like farming in the US probably 30 to 40 years ago, but you don't have this mission-driven organization whose job is to help change the behavior of farmers, help them become more efficient, help them do a better job in producing the food and fiber for the country. And I think it impacts it here tremendously. I, I look at what's going on and I, I see the lack of basic understanding of fertilization programs, how to properly irrigate, how to even schedule irrigation, how weather influences the irrigation demand. And people don't know where to get that information. And there's not really anyone they can rely on to help with that. And, and I think these things try to form and you get a little bit of, of momentum behind a specific commodity and that helps kind of push it forward. But then eventually that kind of falls apart or maybe it doesn't, but often it does. And everything's back to square one. So the land grant institutions across the United States, I miss, and I still rely on the information from those institutions regularly. And I've learned to love VPNs, uh, mainly because that way no one can block me anymore. But it's amazing how much information is readily accessible through the land grant institutions in the United States, through the commodity boards, through the extension service that is at the fingertips of anyone who actually wants to look for it. Do you want to determine what calcium magnesium ratio you want to have for your soil? You can find it in the U.S. Good luck finding it here. You can't even find a soil map. So you have to drive to Lisbon two hours away and find your soil maps from there. You don't have them in a local resource that, that you can dig up and find online. Wow. And I mean, this is Portugal. You know, th this is not, uh, you know, a, a really uh, underdeveloped country here. Yeah, I and no offense to my fellow, I guess my now fellow Europeans, but I think this is why you're looking at a difference in the egg technology coming out of Europe in comparison to what you see in the US. Here, I feel a lot of the programs being developed are more decision support tools, at least what I'm seeing. So helping you know how much to irrigate, when to irrigate, helping you identify and track the chemicals you're using on your farm helping you keep up with the ever-changing regulations that are occurring within the EU, both at the local, regional, and state, as well as national or, I guess, continent level. So I, I think there's, there's a lot of, of how that influences because I think it's, it's observed. People realize there's not a lot of decision support on the farm, at the farm level, and there's not a lot of resources farmers can call on here. And 
I think it will improve. I mean, I, I'm the perpetual optimist. I think that's why you work 10 years in extension. You think people's behavior will change, but it takes people on the ground being willing to share what they're doing, opening their books, opening their farms to people, demonstrating these practices in order to get people to change. And behavior change is hard. It's very hard. And people don't want to take the risk. And I feel myself, I never understood this when I was a farm advisor, but I feel it now. Like I say, oh, should I put on that extra spray or maybe a little bit more water or maybe a little bit more fertilizer, you know, just in case, just in case. And then you have to take a step back and say, no, (laughs) you don't need it. The research is saying what you're doing is correct. Just stick to it. But you're always afraid of what you might be missing. And you're always essentially kind of looking over your shoulder to make sure you're not making a mistake because your livelihood rides on on what you're doing. And I don't know how to get through that without people seeing, touching and feeling that they can do it a different way. You know, we used to have this saying that you never have a field day unless you have something to show in the field. And that's the truth. Like if you have differences, you need to show letting people see the differences in person will provide more change in behavior or more change in practices than talking about it over and over and over again. I can't say enough about replicated demonstrations that show clear data, that show good response and having people out there and actually looking at it. You'll have more people interested in in whatever that treatment was that caused that than anything else. And I, I think that's what's missing here. There's not a lot of agricultural research that's actually applied, developed on the farm. We're establishing an almond variety trial next year, and it's going to be the first trial, from my understanding, in the world that's comparing Portuguese, French, Spanish, and American varieties. These varieties aren't new. Some of them have been around since the 60s. Why has this never been looked at? Well, it's just not in the wheelhouse of what people do, and access is, a, is an issue, and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that's, that's kind of what's missing in, in some of these other areas of the world. I mean, when you look at countries that have a strong extension service, so pretty much Brazil and the United States from the most part, and you look at the agricultural economies of those countries, you can see it. And it's being driven by the ability to take that research-based information, translate it into something that's bite-sizable, get it into the field, demonstrate the practice, and then, wow, behavior changes. And that keeps pushing people forward. Maybe it's not going to get the leaders on that bell curve, that first deviation, but it's going to help pull the, the third, fourth, and fifth deviation over the old average. And, and that's what's needed to bring productivity up. You can be the best farmer in the world, but being able to, to help other people become the best farmer in the world, I think, is also a very valuable and uh, successful career point as well. Yeah. And I know you you pay a lot of attention to technology. So as you think about that, uh, you know, technologies that maybe will be more adopted in the future, what comes to mind, you know, for almonds and the crops that you focus on? You know, what what types of tech are you looking for, I guess? Oh, boy. (laughs) I thought about I knew you were going to ask me this question. and I've been thinking about it for a week. So I think I need to break this down a little bit, Tim. (laughs) So I put this in, in four different groups. So I look for decision support tools. I look for tools to help me with operations. I look at tools to help me with resource management. And then the fourth group is kind of this plant protection aspect. And 
all of these have different reasons why, but I'm sure they're self-explanatory. Decision support, anything that helps me make a more timely decision. So we use soil probes. Uh, we're actually working with AeroWatch this coming year as uh, thanks to your program. I keened on to them from an episode, I think it's probably been over a year ago, and working with them to help us better timer irrigation to understand how much water a crop is using and comparing that to our weather stations to kind of get an understanding of that relationship between crop water use and weather. We are interested in looking at tools that can help us better time nitrogen applications through our micro-irrigation. So thankfully, all our irrigation systems here are automated and we can control them from our cell phone. We can turn on and off the pump with variable frequency drives. We can turn on and off the fertigation injections. So learning how to monitor that in the soil, it would be really interesting for me how to keep that nitrogen in the root zone, knowing where it is at a given period of time. I think that would be something that hasn't really quite been refined. And I don't feel comfortable with the technology, at least not enough to, to pay for it to put it in the field. And I think that's a difference is like these interest groups, but not something I'm willing to put my money on just yet. And I think that's hard for ag tech companies to hear that because they're like, well, if you want it, I have it, but you're not willing to pay for it. Well, I'm not willing to pay for it because I don't know if it really works. And I got a budget. <laughs> And then moving over to kind of the operational side, this is I'm looking more for efficiency side. So looking at these various software tools to help you have a better understanding of your financial aspects on the farm. We're always looking at that. And I'm fortunate and unfortunate that it's actually cheaper for me to hire a financial analyst in Portugal. There's a lot of, lot of skilled individuals here at a very fair salary range. It makes it hard to look at some of these support tools because you're paying almost 50 to 60% of an FTE in those software programs. So you start thinking about that and you you balance that out is if I just take a half of that person's time and, and have them focus even on, you know, pivot tables in Excel, you you feel, well, I can probably do almost as good of a job that way. And it's not perfect and it's not as slick and it's not as quick, but it gets the job done. And, you know, I have an extra half FTE that I can use for another project, whether it's uh, helping inventory or who knows what from the administrative function. I think those are the challenges there. It's, you know, software, everyone thinks it's simple, but it's not. It's complicated because you have the software and then you have to maintain the software. And then you have a bunch of people who are trying to use the software. And I, I can tell you from experience when you have a bunch of people using a software, you find a lot of bugs, but then you have a bunch of people who don't know how to use the software that you have to go through and help train to bring them up. So you have that sales support component that really drags down those systems. So we're, we're always on the lookout for that, but it's, it's again, challenging to find something that, that fits, that you're willing to turn everything, all your data into and hoping that it's going to be there five to 10 years from now. Uh, I know Excel will be there. Resource management, is, it's the same thing. Um, the farms in Portugal are not like the farms in the United States. Of a parcel that you may have purchased, you're somewhere around 85, maybe 80% of that parcel is planted. So there's a lot of different patterns in land use that are associated with European agriculture that you typically don't see in the United States. You have a lot more uh, natural areas that are undisturbed or protected areas because of 
who knows, oaks that are protected or Stone Age sites or Roman ruins. I mean, you can name it. You find it all across Europe. And that kind of creates this mosaic of, of farmland, especially in, in some of these larger farms that you tend to have. So having a little bit of help or guidance of what's going on in those different parcels, tracking how to use those resources that are available on that, maybe looking at rotating different crops into different areas and track that back and forth. We're always looking for things like that. On top of your general resource management of, of having an understanding of what water resources you have on the farm, uh, how much is in your reservoirs, how much are you putting out, you know, your inventory aspects would kind of cross with operations a little bit. Getting a feel for, for where those are on a real-time basis would provide a lot of value. But again, it's, you know, you kind of wing it. And it's always this, this thought that it's good enough. And since it's good enough, you, you kind of just accept it. It doesn't mean it can't be better. And I think that comes back to demonstration. Like, what does it mean for it to be better than what it is now? And I think that's the question that I would add to it. I think from almonds, there's been a lot of interest in pollination. I have mixed emotions about pollination because a lot of times when I look work with different companies, they, they don't understand that pollination is a process. So with an almond tree, it's pollination and you have somewhere around 30 to 40,000 flowers that are blooming over a period of time. And that flower is receptive to pollination, the most receptive within two days after opening. A lot of programs will go through and they'll make an application once or twice during that 10-day period. You can't capture the same aspect of what a natural pollinator can do, such as a honeybee. And then you look at honeybees and you say, yeah, the threat's there. It's, it's real. But it has variable economics. A hive in California is not the same price as a hive in Australia or in the same price as a hive here in Portugal. So you look at, at almonds in Spain and Portugal, which is just as much area as it is in California, even though the production is lower because of lack of water irrigation, due to the fact there's a lot of self-pollinating varieties, we don't even have the bee industry because they've never been used. And even so, we can pick up hives at about 25% of the expense of what's going in California. So you, when you develop some of these technologies, they're very limited to a, a geographical area. And that kind of creates a little bit of a niche zone. And, and I think there may be other ways to look at that process. What I mean by that is with honeybees is what other aspects of those pollination services are being left out in some of these different areas? And how can you drive down that price to make it more efficient? You know, charging a service that will guarantee a hive of bees to be sold for $200 in the U.S. isn't going to fly in Europe when I'm only paying 50 So you have some limitations to your footprint just because of that. It's a big industry, but it's not that big of an industry in comparison to corn, wheat, soybean. And then last but not least, uh, plant protection. It's, it's always interesting to me, some of the new techniques. Uh, the EU is, is constantly putting pressure on the removal of active ingredients. For example, this year's or last year, you can buy triazoles, which is a very common fungicide used. And they removed an additional three classifications of fungicides from our book of chemicals we can use on top of insecticides, herbicides, et cetera. We, we lose somewhere between 10 and 15 active ingredients that are used in agriculture every year in the EU. And this is through this process of re-registration. And the process is so backed up due to the 
polarity of the environmental side of, of aspects that there's not a lot of new chemicals going into that pipeline. And that creates a problem because there's going to be pests, there's going to be diseases. Although we would love to not to use pesticides because they cost money, I have to use pesticides on occasion to, to control the problems I have so I can bring that crop home in essence, to bring it to harvest. And I think there's a lot of emphasis on getting things into organic or biologic. And, and I think that's great. Uh, I would love to use pesticides that have a lot, you know, a lot less residues by the time they reach the food stream, have break down more rapidly in the environment, have less secondary impacts on a variety of, of species within the environment. But where are they? You know, and, and why don't they work consistently? Why do I have to spend five times more on, on a product that's, you know, organic and have to use it multiple times? I mean, the carbon footprint of some of these organic systems is much greater than what it is in conventional. And, and it's, it's not being discussed because of, of just this general idea of our ideal component that, oh, we don't need pesticides. I've been around farming enough. That's just not true. I mean, I couldn't imagine growing up and my, my dad not having fungicides, our apples would be nothing but scab and sooty blotch and fly speck and fire blight would be ravaging the orchard. We would never be able to produce apples. And over here, it's the same thing. Diseases on occasion with a wet spring that happens once every five or six years would just wipe out the orchard. And I, I don't think people realize diseases can happen that fast and how it starts and how it continues to spread. If there's not control mechanisms in that process, it just continues to move in this logarithmic growth and, until you just can't control it anymore. No, this has been great. Thank you, David, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation a lot. I think it's going to make a great episode too. So I really appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you, Tim. I, I Like I said, I, I listen to the, the podcast a lot and, and it's really an honor to be able to participate in it. So thank you. Thank you so much to David Dahl for being on the show. For those of you in the FOA community, I've got another 20 minutes or so of bonus content from this interview that I'm going to go ahead and share with the group. If you'd like to listen to that and you're not in the community yet, you can join them over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Thanks to the Fieldwork Podcast for their support of this episode. Subscribe to that show on any podcast player or at fieldwork.org. Most of all, though, thanks to you for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.